there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you've been enjoying the show and getting some help out of the different professionals that we've been featuring so far. And trust me, there are dozens and dozens more to come. And if you want to get a sneak peek at the episodes that'll be coming up the week ahead, go over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and you can sign up for the Java Junkies Journal right there on the homepage. And while you're there, scroll down a bit and you'll see that you can also search by profession for the episodes that most interest you. And speaking of episodes that will interest you, I'm going to go out on a really big limb here and say that I honestly believe this caffeinated career conversation, the one that we're going to get into in just a minute, is the most important interview that I will ever do on time for coffee. I only wish that I had five hours during which to speak to my guests, to tap into all of their expertise. But these aren't documentaries. No, no, I can't keep you hanging on while you're walking the dog for five hours, for God's sake. So I'm going to do the best I can with the time that I have. I also want to say a huge thanks to both of my guests, because as the parent of a 14-year-old boy, I cannot tell you how much their new book has helped me. The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. It has helped me immensely already. And I know that it's going to continue to be a go-to resource for both me and my husband as our son gets older and becomes an official Java junkie. But this episode, I want to be clear, is not for other parents. It's for all of you, Java junkies, 18 to 25 year olds, most of whom, like the T4C interns who are actually in the room with us here right now today, who are college students and those young people who've recently graduated. So grab your mug of some delicious caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today, are Dr. Bill Sticksrude and Ned Johnson, the authors of the incredible new book, The Self-Driven Child. And please don't let the title mislead you to think that we're going to be talking about little kids. No, my friends, we're going to be talking about young adults. Dr. Sticksrude is a clinical neuropsychologist who lectures widely on the adolescent brain, motivation, the effect of stress, sleep deprivation and technology overload on the brain, while Ned Johnson is the founder of Prep Matters, a tutoring service in the Washington, D.C. area, and in fact, where we're doing this interview from today, and is a very sought-after speaker and teen coach for study skills, parent-teen dynamics, and anxiety management. Gentlemen, welcome to Time for Coffee. I have to ask you the requisite question. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? We're ready to go. <laughs> you don't want to see me unhappy. <laughs> really? 
Okay. Well, let's just say caffeinated on life. <laughs> You're caffeinated I'm on ready life. To go. Yeah. You are ready to go. Fantastic. So I would like to begin our conversation today with something that you actually get at at the end of your book, The Self-Driven Child. And that is that one of the major challenges keeping young people from developing a healthy sense of control over their own lives is what you describe as their narrow and distorted views of the adult world and specifically what it takes to be successful and build a satisfying life. The reality, you say, and Dr. Sixer, I'll begin with you, is that we become successful in this world by working hard at something that comes easily to us and that engages us. Kids grow up thinking that the way you become successful is you do very well in school, you do very well in college, you go to a prestigious university. And it turns out that it really doesn't make much difference in terms of how your life goes, in terms of how successful you are, how much money you make, how satisfied you are with your life, how happy you are. Where you go to college, it doesn't make any sense. And what it turns out that the best thing for a developing brain, and certainly 18 to 25-year-olds still have developing brains, is my sleeping and working really hard to get better and better and better at something. And it just makes sense that you don't come to become successful by doing something you aren't very good at, something you hate. You become successful by doing something that comes naturally to you, you have an affinity for, and working hard to get really good at it. And that's how people become successful. And one of the things we see in our book is that we want young people to be as successful as they want to be, but we also want them to be able to enjoy their success. And we're concerned that some of the young people are chronically tired and they're chronically stressed, and it's affecting the brain in a way that will make it harder for them, even if they achieve massive financial or career success, to enjoy it because they're going to be plagued by anxiety or depression. That's our concern. That's what we want people to have, healthy brains. And certainly, you don't enjoy your success if you're chronically anxious or you're unhappy. I love the quote that you have in the book of Albert Einstein saying that if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. Do you think that parents have inadvertently pushed their kids to climb too many trees? Well, I think in places like D.C. where there's so many educated people and, and so many successful families and they care deeply about their kids being successful in life. But to Bill's point, they had this idea, they imagined this very narrow path that brought them to be a place of success, right? And it probably started with being in the, you know, the advanced reading group in second grade and it cascades all the way through. And so if a kid doesn't do well, you know, stumbles a little bit in elementary school or middle school, the parents imagine that this is going to lead to, you know, a C in seventh great to lead to a C life. So yeah, I think it is really narrow that it's all about academic success. Maybe it's about athletic success, but there are so many jobs in the world and so many ways that people create successful lives and contribute to the world that the 16 and 17 year olds don't know anything about. They just have no idea. I mean, most people can name, you know, a half dozen jobs maybe a dozen jobs. And after that, they're completely at a loss. I mean, you're working really hard to be great, a journalist, an interviewer, you know, a podcast. I, I got nothing, right? But chances are, if you had to do my job of being a standardized test prep person, you'll be like, hmm, this might not be the ideal match for me. And so we have this kind of funny thing where everyone's trying to get through the same door. And it's a terrible, terrible idea. I had this experience a handful of years ago where I had a whole day to myself. We had this cabin upstate New York and I spent 12 hours rebuilding a stone wall. 
Now, if your listeners don't know that I'm barely 160 pounds, so I'm not really the right build for this. I was beyond tired at the end of it, but I had the most exciting day. But as I'm sitting there thinking, I just, with my thoughts for, for 12 hours about this idea of people having different paths, in some reason it popped in my mind that we think of the apex of human civilization as being a writer, right? But what would the world look like if everyone were a writer? Like who would build a stone wall or who would fix a car, right? Or who, I mean, who would do anything else? So we just have this terrible idea when we drive every kid through, he has to get perfect grades. He has to go to elite school because by definition, 90% of kids are not going to be top 10% of the school. And so do we dispirit them? Do we tell them, well, your life is over? It's just, it's a terrible message for children. Dr. Stixrud, you reference the seminal book by Howard Gardner, who's a developmental psychologist, and the book is entitled Frames of Mind, The Theories of Multiple Intelligences. And the book, by the way, for Java Junkies, it came out 35 years ago, but it lays out the different forms of intelligence and how the key to finding professional satisfaction and joy is finding your particular strength because we all have them. Can you lay out a little bit about what Professor Gardner talks about with these multiple intelligences? Sure. Gardner and many other people pointed out that IQ, the whole notion of IQ, is almost worthless because it's not a very good predictor of career success. It's not even a very good predictor of academic success. And what he said, it's much more useful to think that people are intelligent in different ways. And so he identified in his initial book, he identified seven kinds of intelligence, what he called verbal linguistic intelligence, that you see in people who become writers and lawyers and people who speak or read and write for a living. And visual-spatial intelligence, you see in people who become artists or architects or engineers. And logical mathematical intelligence, you see people who have good technical minds and are interested in quantitative kind of careers. And bodily kinesthetic intelligence, you see people who become physical trainers or massage therapists who use the skilled use of their body. And interpersonal intelligence, they really get along with people and motivate people, understand people and teach people and guide people. And intrapersonal intelligence, the ability to manage our own emotions and motivate yourself. And I find this 35 years later to be incredibly useful in my own work. And in helping people understand what they're good at, I want people to be paying attention to once they're 16 or so. What can you do better than most people and what you love to do? It's really that intersection of what you're really good at and what you like to do. It really, I think, is the right way to guide what do I study or what do I do. I love what you tell the older children and adolescents that come in to get tested at your company. You say, I hope I find things you suck at because successful people are good at some things and not so good at others, but wisely make a living doing something they're good at. And I should also say that the young people who are coming in to get tested, maybe their parents or they suspect they may have some learning differences. They may have attentional issues and things like that. Right. So you know, I took an IQ test. I wanted to see whether I'd be draftable to go to Vietnam, to the Vietnam War. So I took the Army physical and included an IQ test, and I got an average score. And it surprised me because I was a pretty good college student, but I got an average score because I did well in the vocabulary, the verbal reasoning, but I just sucked at the spatial visualization class. And there's one test of tool use. <laughs> I knew the hammer and the saw and the screwdriver, and after that, I was helpless. I had no idea. And so I got an average score. And if you know the profession, that couldn't be right. I mean, he's a pretty bright guy. If you see how inept I am at fixing anything, assembling anything from Ikea, I'm just helpless. And so that's the idea that I think kids get the idea that straight A students try to be equally good at everything are the ones who are going to be most successful in this world. And it turns out 
the valedictorians after about 25 or 26, they are more successful than other people because you, in real life, you don't try to be equally good at it. And, and I started in graduate school as an English major and I got myself into the PhD program in English at Berkeley and I lasted two quarters. I flunked out because I didn't turn a single assignment in 20 weeks. I went back to Seattle where I lived. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll do something with children. That's a terrible teacher because I was nice, but I had no behavior management skills at all. Classroom management, because kids literally would be climbing out the windows. And so I had to well, I had to find something that I could do that used my talent. And what eventually came down to is that I'm pretty good interpersonally. And I love young people. And I have enough verbal intelligence that I could think and write. And I found a way to package that. has been incredibly fulfilling as a career. But it took me walking out of graduate school, getting fired from the job typing, being a terrible teacher. The one year I taught full-time, I had a headache every Monday. It was in 1977, and I swear I haven't had a headache since. And I didn't have my first job in my career until I was 34 years old. And I felt kind of behind other people who were starting their career at 28. But once I knew something was helpful to people, who gave a shit? Absolutely. Ned, I want to ask you about one section in The Self-Driven Child in which you, you actually say that the part of the book is entitled Breaking the Mass Psychosis, which is some pretty strong language. Why do you call it a mass psychosis? And what is the mass psychosis? Well, in the new DSM, which is the Handbook of Psychological Disorders, the latest version has this shared delusional disorder. And so if my parents were both hardcore, you know, conspiracy nuts, and we all wore a tinfoil hat around <laughs> the kitchen table, chances are I'd grow up with some pretty unconventional ideas about how the government works. But in places like D.C., we have this idea that if you don't go to an Ivy League school, you'll never be successful. Well, there are people who believe that. It's just that all the evidence, you know, and all the statistics and research shows it's simply not true, right? I mean, less than a half percent of the American population has an Ivy League degree. I think there's a much higher percentage than that who are successful. Roughly two-thirds of Americans don't even have a college degree. And I think a lot of people are successful without them. And so the challenge is, you know, in places like D.C., I mean, Bethesda is the most educated place in the world. If you look at the percentage of people who have college degrees and who have advanced degrees, and a big part of that is, you know, the influence of NIH. And so, again, like we talked before, these people who have had the experience of having very successful lives, and if we all tell our histories, you know, in retrospect, and we think, oh, the reason I'm so successful at this is because I went to this university, had this grad degree, did it up. And that might be true. But when we apply that to all children... We have a real problem because, again, by definition, only 10% are going to be the top 10% of the high school class. And even if mom and dad are super high IQ, there's regression to the mean, right? Or, you know, I'm super bright, but I'm just not interested in school. And so when the shared psychosis is the idea that to be successful, you have to be the top of your class every year all the way through. You have to go get perfect SAT scores. You have to go to lead college. There are only a handful of things that are acceptable. You got to do soccer. I'm the soccer here. I mean, I'm going to do rock climbing, right? You got to play violin. Really, the tube is not cool. And and so what we're really doing is because we know this is a path to success, we try to funnel everyone onto that path of success. And oh, heaven forbid, if you fall off that, you're cooked. And so it's this really fear-based thinking and also trying to funnel people, everyone, you know, and, and it's it's stressful to be feel like you're constantly elbow to elbow with people and there's not enough space for you. Where's my place going to be? People are constantly trying to knock you off the balance. Beam. It's a terrible way to approach life where if we have the opportunity to stop and just pause really 
think about who are all the people in your life who you know were successful. Think about Uncle So-and-so and, and you know, Sally, what were their paths to success? It's probably easier in places like D.C. where you don't have such a high percentage of people who are overly educated as attorneys or as researchers or whatever. I mean, if you grew up in places where there are a lot more entrepreneurs or people didn't finish college and found other ways to be successful. I mean, one of the things we talk about in our book is the benefit of a plan B. We want everyone to be as educated as they can be because we want people to work hard and develop themselves, their brains, and themselves as people. But if you know that if I'm a B student, not an A student, well, chances are, to Bill's point and, and Howard Gardner, I just met with a boy this week. His siblings, two of them went to Michigan, two of them went to Cornell. He is an okay learner. He's not a great learner. And so he thinks he's going to be a disaster. Well, he is as charming as charming could be. He could be great as a salesperson, an HR director, the CEO of a company because he's great with people, right? He doesn't have to be smart enough, not my favorite word, but smart enough to design an iPhone. He just has to be sensible enough and sensitive enough to people to know how to get people the right tool and therefore make a so this math psychosis is the idea that there's a very narrow path to success and woe to the child of them that falls off that path to success. We do so much better by giving people, there are many, many options and let's explore a bunch of them. By plan B, you don't mean B like you can get Bs. Ah, uh, no. So so there's a great research in Sonia Lupian. She's at the Center for Studies of Human Stress. The beginning of her book talks about nuts, the things that make people nuts. And so N is novelty. U is unpredictability. T is threat, really threat to ego because most of us don't have physical threats. And then S is a sense of control or below sense of control. And she talks about how useful it is to have a plan B, that you can work really hard for your plan A. And it's much safer if you know that there's a plan B, that's a safety net. If you fall short, there's another path for you going forward. So actually, the same boy I was talking about, he's taking these ridiculous standardized tests that I torment kids with, right? He doesn't find them easy. And one of the first things that I always do is navigate over to FairTest. FairTest.org is a group that's committed to the reformation and how standardized tests are used. And, and FairTest maintains a list of more than a thousand colleges and universities that are test corruption. So there are places that are super competitive, Bates and Bowdoin and GW and Wake Forest that are test corruption. And then a bunch of other places that maybe people know less of. And so you don't have to take this test. Look at all these places. There's more than a thousand colleges. You don't have to take this. And knowing that he doesn't have to makes it easier for him to want to because it isn't fear-based. If I fall short, my life is over. No, no, let's work really hard because if you don't, here's our plan B. So Dr. Sixer, Ned was just talking about the plan B as it applies to test taking. How can Java junkies bring a plan B approach into their time at college and into their post-college sort of early professional life? Yeah. So I will say, when you ask about this plan B mean getting Bs, there, I told my kids that there's really a very low correlation between grades and success in life. And at one point, my daughter in high school, all her friends were being paid for A's. I offered her 100 bucks for a C, so she could see that it didn't really affect her life all that much. But in any case, the idea of this plan B is simply that we want people to be flexible and we want kids to go. We want young people to go after their plan A. But not to think somehow, if that doesn't work, it's a complete disaster. But the central thesis of our book is that it's important for people to have a healthy sense of control over their own life. In part, because a low sense of control is the most stressful thing in the universe. And in part, because young people don't really become truly self-motivated until they have a sense of control over their own life. This is my life and I got to shape it. And so the plan B simply comes. Some people have rigid ideas about what it takes to be successful and then things don't go that way. And they feel that everything is going wrong or Really screwed up. And so often, I mean, that part of the reason that Ned and I say in our book that we really feel like we don't know what's in young people's best interest 
is that so often something that feels like a big disaster turns out to be really a blessing. I want to high-five you across the table right now because I've seen that happen in my life over and over again. Well, God, you know, when I flunked out of Berkeley, all my professors were nice. They gave me charity A's or completes, except for this one. You know, I thought I was an asshole. You flunked me. You didn't turn me a single assignment. You flunked. I couldn't get back to the university. I thought that my whole life had basically went up in flames. And it took me two months to realize that, that was the best thing that could possibly happen. And I started to I hope that I can run into that guy someplace and thank him. And actually, two years later, I was taking courses in campus at the University of Washington. And I saw this guy. He was up for some kind of English conference. And I went up to him. He didn't remember. But I thanked him for flunking. because the best possible thing. There's no way I should have been an English professor. So this plan B idea is that you just don't get rigidly attached to things going one way because we don't have control over it. And a healthy sense of control doesn't mean we're supposed to control everything. I try to control you and try to control you. It just means that I can direct my life and I can learn from my experience and I can shift things if I have to. And I'm not just a helpless pawn in the universe. Ned, in The Self-Driven Child, you devote a lot of space to talking about the research that's been done on the brain. And I was hoping that you could give us a quick 101 on the stress response systems in our brain, including the amygdala. So I talk about this with all the students I work with. The two principal parts of the brain that I think are really helpful for kids to know about, for young people to know about, adults too, really, is what's called the prefrontal cortex. And so the prefrontal cortex is the part of the right behind your forehead, and it's where executive function abilities lie. So executive function ability to plan, to organize, you know, to anticipate outcomes, mental and emotional flexibility. It's what really makes well-functioning people function well, right? The amygdala is this very primitive part of the brain, the middle of the brain, and you can think of it as the threat detector in your brain. It doesn't think, it simply perceives threat. And when we're in our right minds, our prefrontal cortex regulates the stress response. So this amygdala goes off and boom, perceives a threat, and if things are going well, your prefrontal cortex will evaluate what was that? Is it something I really need to pay attention to? What's the plan if I need to attend to that? Or actually, it's no big deal. Thanks for letting me know. Okay, but when things really start to go south on people, when they develop anxiety, depression, the amygdala is overly reactive. It becomes what a guy named Robert Spolsky describes as hysterical amygdala, and it perceives threat everywhere, and it overreacts to the threats that it perceives. And when that happens, your prefrontal cortex is sort of kicked to the curb, and we're simply responding. We're not really thinking well. So when people take the GMAT of GRE, from helping people prepare for a test, in many ways, it doesn't matter what you and I work hard to put into your brain. If when you get to the moment where it matters, you kind of lose your mind, right? And so there's so many young people, and adults for that matter, who are really dysregulated with sleep deprivation with anxiety, and they just can't do what they can, in theory, do. And so it's that frustration where you have the sense of what I should be able to do, but then you can't do it or can't get yourself to do it. So a lot of what Bill and I would talk with young people is to explain to them kind of what's going on with your brain, how these things work, and what are the things you can do to quiet your amygdala and strengthen your prefrontal cortex. So when things don't go well, you know, when we have this line that we talk about, it's not character, it's chemical. For a lot of people who struggle with ADHD, right, or motivation or anxiety, they think, I'm such a jerk, I'm an idiot, I can't do such and such. Well, it means you don't have enough dopamine, you don't have enough of this chemical that gets you to really pay attention and motivate for the things that you want to do but you don't feel like doing. Well, let's talk about the things that can actually help you be more balanced, to create more dopamine, to create more activation, and not just keep beating yourself up over and over like there's something fundamentally flawed with your character. Dr. Stixford, you ask your readers of The Self-Driven Child to think about what kind of brain they want 
for themselves and their children for the rest of their lives. Why do you do that? And how is stress, what Ned was talking about, affecting their ability to have a healthy functioning brain? We know that the prefrontal cortex that Ned was talking about, that people call the CEO of the brain, the conductor of the orchestra, the cognitive functions of the prefrontal cortex aren't fully mature till 25, plus minus three. And if you're male, probably four plus three. <laughs> and if you have ADHD, probably plus five. And the emotional regulation functions aren't completely mature till 32, plus minus three. And so during adolescence, after puberty, there's tremendous development in the brain, prefrontal cortex, where the prefrontal cortex gets wired with the rest of the brain. And so what we're concerned about is young people who spend their adolescent years chronically tired, chronically stressed, where the wiring in the brain is such that they're just used to being tired and stressed. They're used to having that amygdala basically freaking out and running things and just having to struggle to keep up. And we're concerned that if somebody's 15 and they have an anxiety disorder, depression, that it does change the brain. It's not irreversible, but it does it's not irreversible. Right. We'll come back. But it does change the brain in a way that makes it more likely that they're going to have more anxiety. And if you have a lot of anxiety, eventually you tend to get depressed. You don't get depressed without going through anxiety. And so we're concerned that the neuroscientists say that adolescents and young adults are sculpting their brain because of the way that experience shapes the brain. And I think most people would want these sculpting brains that are used to being highly focused, lots of effort, lots of determination, hard work, but relatively low stress. And it's not that stress is uniformly bad. We need some stress in our life. But if you want a brain that's going to enjoy your life, you don't want to be chronically tired of stress. Okay. So could you speak to the importance of sleep? <laughs> And how you believe that sleep We're doing is... five episodes. <laughs> I know. That's why I said I needed five hours. How sleep, in your opinion, is actually brain food. And the many, many, many downsides of not getting enough of it. And let me quickly put this into context. You define chronic sleep deprivation as being six hours or less of sleep a night. And you believe that young adults need seven to nine hours of sleep a night in order to maintain healthy brains? Well, <laughs> there's a lot to be said about them. One of the easy things to start with is that the effects of sleep deprivation on the brain look remarkably similar to the effects of stress, right? When you're chronically sleep deprived, your amygdala is about 60% more reactive and therefore your executive functions are really going sideways. So almost every kid I work with gets some stump speech about sleep deprivation. And this boy is working super bright ADHD. I was explaining to him that sleep deprivation will create effects that are similar to ADHD. So I have a harder time being organized, you know, executing a plan, blah, blah, blah. Also that emotional and mental flexibility. And I said, do you ever notice when you're really tired, you feel like your mom's even more annoying than normal? And he smiles and says, my God, I must be tired all the time, right? <laughs> she leans over and smacks, right? But it's certainly the case when we're tired, we feel like the world is out to get us, like our boss is a jerk, our boyfriend or girlfriend is really being cranky. It's actually the Mythbusters in that TV show did a thing where they demonstrated that people could drive a car better if they were legally intoxicated than if they were clinically sleep deprived. So when I talk with high school students, I said, so that big math test on Friday, I'll tell you what, I'll swim by your house or we'll do the last move review, make sure you're really prepped. And just because we want you to do your best on the test, let's do a couple shots of vodka before you take the What do you think? <laughs> right? But part of the problem with sleep deprivation is that 
my favorite experiment actually in sleep deprivation involves having people be clinically sleep deprived two weeks on the six hours of sleep. And then they measure your emotional control, your verbal retrieval, your problem solving, decision making, reaction time. But then they're serving. So it's Andrew, how do you think you're doing? Well, I know I'm pretty tired now, but I feel like I did pretty well on that. In other words, right. your, your hand is going right. down like yeah. a line graph yeah. going yeah. down. Right. And so people think that the perception is that I know I'm tired, but I think I'm doing pretty well. But actually, my performance is deeply impaired because self-perception, right? Performance monitoring is another cognitive function that is impaired by sleep deprivation. So if people are sort of slowly becoming zombies, they don't know that they're slowly becoming zombies. And the, the crazy thing is that every year, that more research comes out on how important sleep is, it becomes just ridiculously clear how using a few minutes, it's a big deal. I mean, just from a learning point, when you sleep, your brain is basically collating and integrating and refreshing information that you learn, and it's making connections between the information you learn that you didn't make when you were awake. You have a good night's sleep, you remember better, you understand better, you think more clearly. And from an emotional point of view, it's absurd because as Ned was saying, yeah, if you're asleep deprived, if you get less than six hours of sleep for a few nights, then your amygdala is very reactive. And if you don't sleep for one night, you have weaker connections between your prefrontal cortex and your amygdala. And one of the most interesting things we just learned a few years ago is that during dream sleep, it's the only time in a 24-hour cycle that your brain is virtually devoid of stress chemicals. And 75 to 95% of the content of your dreams, it's emotional material. It's memories or situations that have emotional themes. And what the sleep scientists think now is that during this dream sleep, you're replaying these painful emotional memories in a chemically stress-free environment. And people are saying, this is like overnight therapy. It's why people have always said, it'll look better in the morning. And we wrote an article where we just asked for psychology today, why is it that we'll see a kid who's diagnosed with anxiety disorder at 11, and they're still really anxious at age 50? Why don't they get better? 15 or 50? 50. And we think, in part, because they don't sleep. And what I tell them people, I see a lot of really stressed, really anxious, older high school students, college students. I mean, certainly college students, you know, sleep deprived stigma of our population. Yeah, I say to them that you can't heal anxiety and you can't heal depression if you're chronically tired. Ned, I want to ask you about what I think was one of the more shocking lines that I read in the book, and that was that a college dorm is one of the most dysregulated living environments outside of a war zone. What led you to make that stunning statement? Bill, do you want to tell that story about the girl with the ADHD meds? Uh, this, this, will, this will cue it up. <laughs> so, several years ago, I tested this girl who was a junior at an elite independent college. Just she's 21. And I followed her since she was in second grade. And she was a lovely kid. And she had ADHD. And at one point, she's already told me that she not infrequently pulls all nighter and studying for a test. And occasionally, we'll do two nights in a row. And we're working together. And she says to me, I think that the Ritalin I've been taking all these years to treat my ADHD is wrecking my brain. And I said, why do you say that? She said, because I feel like when I study now, I have to study longer. I don't remember the stuff as well. I take a test and I can't retrieve it as well. My mom thinks it's the alcohol. So I say, how much do you drink? She says, well, I probably average five drinks a night, four nights a week. And I said, well, you know, that'd be considered alcohol level drinking by an adult. And she said, well, my best friend drinks 12 drinks a night, six nights a week. And I said, she's a full-blown alcoholic. She needs intervention. But the thing that struck me 
was that I think about college life as like the parallel universe because she thought the most likely explanation for what she considered to be her cognitive impairment, it wasn't the massively impairing effects of sleep deprivation or the massively impairing effects of binge drinking. It was the riddle. And then on college campuses, especially in dormitories, with the average bedtime, 2 to 3 a.m., kids go to bed at 11 o'clock some night, 4 o'clock, not at all in some nights. The amount of binge drinking is huge, the amount of pot smoking, and there's just no regulation. That's why we call it the most dysregulated living environment, where there's just no day or night, and where kids think that the laws of nature don't apply. <laughs> Matthew Walker is this great book of Hawaii State, great sleep researcher, and in most of his interviews, he ends with the most important advice in you know getting adequate sleep is, is probably most important, but perhaps even more important or secondary to that is being regular with the time that you go to bed. So if one night you go to bed at 11, you sleep seven hours, then at 3 a.m., sleep seven hours, da da da. Basically, what you're doing is jet lagging. So even if you're getting the requisite eight hours of sleep a night, you're jet lagging yourself. And so even kids in high school, if they stay up until 2 o'clock in the morning and sleep until noon, and then on the Sunday, you go to bed at regular time, have to get up at seven, they're just, your brain is fried. And you just can't do what you can do because you're messing so much with brain chemistry. And then you want your brain to perform at its best. I, mean, I had a student who prepares with the book talk that Bill and I gave. And I love this kid. She's a sophomore in college. Now. She said, so we're going to have Andrea reach out to you because she has a question for you about migraines. And I'm sort of laughing. I'm like, well, I'm not actually a neurologist, but sure, why not? And she shows up. And so I ask all the kind of obvious questions you would ask. You talk to a doctor, you know, blah, 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 what's going on? Yeah, yeah, this is nothing. And then she volunteered. She said, and I've gone to my optometrist three times to see whether my prescription is wrong. And I said, huh. And well, no, nothing's wrong with my vision. So what made you think something was wrong with your vision? Well, when I sit down and do my reading, I'd fall asleep within about 10 minutes of doing my reading. Did it occur to you? Maybe you're just tired. Well, but my friends, and they always go to, but my friends have it even worse than I do. Like, you know, but my friend drinks 12 drinks. I'm only drinking five. How could there be a problem? So I gave her, you know, the same sleep deprivation stump speech I give everybody. You've written that college is a brain toxic environment where students are sometimes competing with one another to see who is the most exhausted. And I don't know if you've coined it, but somebody coined sleep bulimia. What is sleep bulimia? What are the signs that you have sleep bulimia? Well, a sleep researcher by the name of Robert Stickle made this term up to describe the sleep patterns of college students who basically will go for long periods during the week or they'll go to bed at four in the morning and have a class at 10 and undersleep, then will binge on weekends when they go home. Binge sleep. Yeah, that's the idea about the bleeding part. And it's true. The signs are simply that this dysregulated sleep. And what I tell young people is that I see a lot of young people who are really struggling to make it. A lot of kids who we might call failure to launch. And most of them are going to bed at 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning. And so, as Ned said, what the sleep specialists want us to do is they want us to go to bed at the same time every night, and they want us to wake up in the morning without an alarm clock. And they say that if you're ever tired during the day without caffeine, you're sleeping And so it sounds like what culture are we talking about? What planet are we talking about? It's just so different from where we live. But the research is just making it so clear that if we can move in that direction, it's not that it has to be perfect, but we move in that direction. I just saw a kid recently, a 19 year old, and I said, the first thing I want to do is just make a bedtime. If it's 12.30, have a bedtime and then shoot for that. And if you have to take melatonin to fall asleep, he has ADHD, and a lot of kids with ADHD need to take melatonin to fall asleep. Fine, but have a bedtime because it's that consistency of routine that is certainly one of the things that allows people to be successful. Ned, you've also written that sleep deprived teens are more likely to use caffeine 
nicotine, alcohol, and drugs to cope with mood swings. How is that exacerbated at college? Well, in college, you, <laughs> there's less parental support, right? There's no one who's really overseeing you, right? You don't have the scaffolding, no one's holding you accountable. It's certainly much more acceptable. There's certainly a lot more access. There's this competitive martyrdom, right? So who suffered the most and who slept the least? And it really becomes, you know, that I will sleep when I'm dead. Okay, apparently you're going to get there first, right? <laughs> you know, so it's really a challenge. And again, we all compare ourselves to other people. And so, you know, I'm only getting six hours of sleep a night, but if she's getting four, I think that I'm doing well. So it's a real problem. I mean, you know, it ends up being going back, you know, Elvis went in Vegas years, right? You take cocaine in the morning, get going, you take provisions at night to fall asleep, and you do that over and over and over. And short term, sure. Long term, just a disaster. And so kids who are using stimulant medication, particularly if it's not been prescribed to them, right, to try to study, to binge study, right, and then they can't fall asleep, so they mass amounts of alcohol, they don't really fall asleep so much as pass out. Because it's a great thing on sleep research. It shows that that same REM sleep, that same dream sleep that Bill was talking about that is so therapeutic to us, the evidence shows that alcohol really scrambles that. And so people can be asleep for six, seven, eight hours, but if they've gone to bed drunk, that REM sleep is disrupted. And so that therapeutic benefit of sleep is lost, which puts them in a position where they're likely to have more anxiety and then for want to medicate with alcohol. You get this really, really unhealthy, vicious cycle. So how are those, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drug use, lack of sleep and high stress affecting the hippocampus? And why should young people care if their hippocampus is not functioning properly? Well, the hippocampus is a part of the brain that is responsible for any new learning. There's research on this famous neuropsychologist, famous man who had both sides of his hippocampus removed because he was having seizures that started the hippocampus. And so he had surgical removals in the 1950s. And he had to live in the hospital for years because... He couldn't remember anything. He'd see the same nurse day after day. And each time he'd get up and introduce himself and he couldn't remember. He could remember stuff that happened 20 years before, but he couldn't do any new learning. And what we know is that chronic stress and chronic sleep deprivation, it makes the amygdala bigger, more reactive, more easily stressed. And it shrinks the hippocampus. It shrinks the hippocampus that just mild stress or mild sleep deprivation will basically interfere with the cellular function of the hippocampus, which is just why when you're stressed, it's harder to remember things. I remember having lunch with my, one of my best friends at graduate school, who I'd known for four years and seen him at least several times a week, four years. And we had dinner together when I was preparing off to take my first job. And a guy comes up to us and says, Hi, Tom. And Tom turns to introduce me, and he can't remember my name. He's been my best friend for four years. When the guy left, I said, Tom, what was the story? He said, the last time I saw him was about a month ago, and we had an argument about money. So this guy comes up to him in Tom's stress response time, and he can't remember his best friend's name. And so from a learning point of view, from a thinking point of view, that we want to protect our hippocampus, and we protect our hippocampus by not being chronically tired and not being chronically stressed. And the hippocampus is also the part of the brain that generates new neurons, new brain cells. So if you're not getting enough sleep or heaven forbid, if you're binge drinking, right, you're basically killing this batch of new neurons that you're going to want <laughs> six weeks down the line, right? Yeah, that's really important. I thought it was really interesting. You mentioned that Harvard University study about binge drinking and how 44% of students, almost 50% of students at four-year colleges drink at the binge level or higher. How many drinks a day is that? 
And for females, it's four drinks in a row. And for males, it's five drinks in a row. That's what's considered binge drinking. And how did this happen? I mean, look, I know when I went to college way back in the olden days in 1981, I actually started in 82, but I have a memory. I had never really drunk alcohol when I was in high school. I have a memory of crossing the campus at Middlebury College, and it was in February. And I kept like, why is my face hitting the snow so much? <laughs> I discovered, I think it was white Russians or something, that drink. I had no idea what they were. And I was clearly wasted out of my mind. Young people are 100% more likely to drink and use drugs when they feel stressed. So are adults, by the way. How did we get here? I mean, the fact is, and I guess by my story, what I'm saying is it hasn't changed that much. I think it's probably the same. The college is a place where young people will experiment and learn and learn the hard way about how to manage drinking. You know, the first popular book that was written about the adolescent brain was probably 15 years ago. I mean, made the point that the patterns of teenage drinking had changed over the previous 20 years. That where it used to be that kids would drink to have fun. And even 15 years ago, they were saying that kids were drinking to become obliterated, to be void of all the stress and pressures of a daily life. And I think that's probably true when you see what binge drinking is, that basically you go beyond having fun. You go beyond, you have several weeks in a row. You can find having fun to passing out or just not knowing where you are. So I think that there's probably a huge correlation between the fact that kids sleep so much less on college campus. I'm, I'm older than, than you are. There's, there's a lights out by 11 o'clock or midnight in a college dormitory when I went to school. And now the average bedtime is three or four. I'm meeting with a student right now who's in the University of Florida, and he's on a student government there. And the big sort of cost we're working on right now is to come up with enough money to fully fund the library so that they can be open 24 hours a day. And I asked him, I said, how often do you need to be doing your studying at a library at four? He said, well, not every day. The idea that he needs to be studying at four or five o'clock in the morning is just, it's foolishness, right? I mean, again, what's so hard for me is both in high school and college, if the idea of studying is to actually learn stuff and actually retain it, but as Bill points out, when we sleep, we create all these connections, right? It makes things memorable. We're messing this up. I mean, you remember things, the more connected they are, right? You're, you know, at our age, right? We try, what's the name of that person? Oh, wait, we saw him at the Thanksgiving thing. And you go through all these different connections you get at it sideways, right? But that interconnectivity is what makes me is more sticky. But when people just simply learn chapter two, but don't have time to integrate it with chapter one, they take a test on it and it goes out the window. And they learn chapter three, they learn chapter two, four, and there's no integration. So at the end of a semester, you kind of got nothing there. So let's talk about, as we get towards the end of the interview here, how Java junkies, in addition to getting enough sleep, can help themselves to deal with stress. You talk in the book about the Buddha brain. And I know that both of you do transcendental meditation. What is the Buddha brain, Dr. Stixrud, and how can Java junkies try to get in that headspace? Yeah. So when I was at Berkeley and struggling at Berkeley, two people said to me that I was the most nervous person they have ever met. My foot tapped relentlessly. I developed a facial tag, and I just kind of shook. Partly it was due to anxiety, partly to caffeine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't do caffeine, but luckily... One of them said to me, if there's anybody in this planet 
that needs to learn to meditate, it's you. And so I went back to Seattle and I learned transcendental meditation. And within about two months, my foot stopped tapping. Before that, I'd go to the movies and somebody said, could you just stop that? It's annoying. As long as I focused on my foot, I could stop it. But as soon as I watched the movie again, you know, I my foot was stopped tapping. I just noticed within a couple of months that my foot stopped tapping. I also noticed that when I was at Berkeley, I couldn't sit and read. I was stressed enough that I couldn't sit and read for more than 12 or 15 minutes without having to distract myself. I'd go look at a magazine or make a phone call. And what I found was that when I started meditating, within a couple months, I could sit for two hours and read stuff or study stuff. And I think that the research on meditation and developing a bigger brain or developing brain that works in a more orderly, coherent, integrated way is so compelling. I just think that I think it's cruel that we don't teach it the kids in school at least let them have the option to do it because it's so it's just life transforming for so many people I mean, the idea that you can actually deeply relax your mind and body and experience that basically complete mental stillness we have that state within us with TM people often experience it the first meditation that their mind is completely silent completely peaceful the first time they learn the first time they do it which means that that possibility was already there they didn't have to develop it it was already there there. Life is increasingly fast-paced, technologically connected, that we increasingly need what we call radical downtime, these periods where we're unconnected and where we aren't apparently doing anything, but these experiences that refresh the brain, that rest the brain, that integrate the brain. And my feeling is that deep meditation is one of the most important things that we can do to make our brains move well. But you also got some of that out of your time when you were younger playing guitar, right? So there are other ways that if somebody isn't into meditation where they can relax themselves, whether it's exercise or other outlets, or do you disagree? Well, it's yes and no. I mean, one way I think for your listeners to think about this is that to really be happy and to be peaceful, right? You can't be anxious and be happy. You can't be anxious and be peaceful. And all of us have stresses in our lives. But I kind of think about the development of anxiety is the balance. What's the inflow of stress to my nervous system? And what are the outflows, right? And so I, you know, I don't want to too many things at once that are too stressful or too intense, but I also want to have healthy ways to get rid of stress. And I think part of it with college campus and binge drinking is that is a way for people to get rid of stress. It's not a healthy way. And if people don't have a healthy way, they'll come up with unhealthy ways. So certainly healthier ways include exercise, really connected time with friends, being well-rested. To Bill's point, increasingly our world, it can be so intense. The people around us so intense, so much technology that exercise alone, you know, or doing art or playing guitar, these things that can be really fun, relaxing. They're not relaxing enough. And so one of the things about meditation is that it's not like if stress out of your mind is 100 points of stress, right? And playing guitar is only 20. So it's fun. What we think is that people really need a place where they go back to a baseline of zero, where it's fully, fully restorative. And I think there's so many people in our world who are so used to being, if not chronically anxious, at least kind of low-grade anxious, and they go through their whole life being kind of low-grade. We want people to have that experience of deep, deep, deep relaxation because it pulls stress out of the nervous system, makes them better able to take on, to go pedal to metal and take on the challenges. But it also allows them to bring that once they get to a place of success, that they can feel peaceful and happy and really enjoy what they work so hard to achieve. I'll also mention that 
I used to have, I'm a, a guitar player, rock and roll musician, and in high school, I would spend hours practicing, learning my instruments, and listening to songs and trying to figure out how to play them. And I'd oftentimes go into this little room where I had a guitar and organ and think that a half an hour got by, two and a half hours had gone by, what they call this flow experience, where you're completely, deeply engaged in something. And that's also really good for the brand. I tell young people, I tell teenagers that aren't so academically motivated, but really have that kind of experience where they're really working really hard on art, or dance, or drama, or music, or sports. I say, I don't worry about you, because you're sculpting a brain that is really used to, knows how to be highly focused, highly determined, lots of effort, lots of focus, but low stress. And that's that flow experience. It's also really good. I think that that's a wonderful experience for the brain. I think that young people having something in your life where in addition to this deep relaxation, and what we call this radical downtime, which includes sleep and meditation, and just time for mind. There's all this research that suggests how important just having time to let your mind wander is for creativity, for problem solving, and for young people. We develop a sense of empathy for other people by thinking about other people, by thinking about our lives and our relationships. And if we don't have time to do that, we lose that. So one of my last questions that I try to ask all of my time for coffee guests is to share a story you you sort of did already, Dr. Sixard, but maybe you just want to put a finer point on it about a time in your professional life when you struggled. Maybe you had a terrible boss. Maybe you were in over your head. Whatever it was, in my case, you know, one instance was when I was 43 and was suddenly relieved of my responsibilities at CNN. They didn't renew my contract after 14 years and I had to reinvent myself. So if you would share just a a short story that touches on an experience that you had professionally where you had to dig deep to get to the other side. So the hardest thing that I ever experienced professionally was very early on my career. I've been a psychologist for, I guess, five years. And I was licensed in Maryland and in D.C. And I thought that the renewal was on the same schedule. And it turned out that Maryland was six months earlier than D.C. And so I got, I got a letter that I was basically six months behind. I hadn't renewed my license. I'd been pricing without a license for six months. And I thought that I moved to Maryland and they were supposed to renew my license within a couple weeks and didn't do it. And I thought, God, I'd been pricing without a license. I could lose my license. And it was probably the time in my professional life where I felt the most anxiety and most concern. But the thing that was most helpful to me was plan B thinking. Because I thought, well, if I lose my license, I still know a lot of stuff that's helpful to people. I could tutor. I could make a living doing something else. And it turned out, like most things that we panic about, I didn't really need to worry about it. We my license and it was fine. But that experience for me of really looking, what if I lose my license? I've worked for all these years with my psychologist. What if I lose my license and I can't practice as a psychologist? It was so beneficial to me. Because since people are worried about being sued, or I never think about it. Because I know that I have a plan B. If I can't be, it's like, I'll, I'll do something else because I know a lot of stuff is useful. That's probably the biggest professional challenge for me. Thank you. Thanks so much. Ned? Well, I had, <laughs> I had a year, sort of a terrible year. I mean, my, my grandmother died. My father was an alcoholic, died suddenly. And I had cancer all in one. And then two colleagues left. So it was, it was a hard year. Now, I had been clinically depressed as a kid. And I've worked really hard to stay away from there. But, you know, when people are depressed, you sort of scar the brain. So that's always there. I work really hard to steer away from that. I remember talking to Bill. And he said, well, remind you, you know, if you haven't, you know, I've been meditating for a long while, but I'd sort of fallen in the habit of only doing it once a day. And the best practice would have been twice a day. 
We said doing it twice a day is more than double the effort, more than double the impact. And he also reminded me the value of spending time in nature. So I, you know, really made my practice. I go and walk in the woods every day and I really took meditation very seriously. And again, for me, it was this year where I realized, you know, I'm a pretty hardworking guy. I love what I do. You know, I'm here all the time, but everyone has a limit, right? It's tough as we all where everyone has a limit. And so I realized, you know, so much of the work that I do, I help people better who are really stressed about a lot of stuff and learning is not going well. I help people better when I take care of myself first, right? So it's like, and we talked about the airplane, put your own oxygen in first. And so that was the year where I really realized I have to take seriously, making sure I'm getting enough sleep, exercise on a daily basis, take my meditation seriously. And by doing that, by keeping my nervous system as balanced as it can be, I'm just so much more able to help other people. So for all the listeners who are out there, for all the ways you're trying to support your own goals, trying to support your friends, your family, all the people that matter to you, if you don't take care of yourself first, it's very hard to be successful in these things that you really want to be successful in. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, But based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Dr. Stixford, why don't we start with you? I wouldn't change your family. (laughs) But I say that because all the crazy stuff I did, all the stuff I feel that led me in directions that I have a completely charmed life. And so I screwed up a lot of stuff, but I was very insecure, a lot of anxiety. I didn't have a girlfriend off in college. I was just so anxious and insecure. But I don't feel bad about that. And I think the greatest lessons I've learned is that you really can't evaluate what's happening because you don't know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Because you evaluate a good thing, bad thing six months later or a year later or 10 years later or 50 years later. So for me, just having experiences where I screwed stuff up and a lot of anxiety and this and that, that actually, I probably would have known that that was okay. That was part of my path. That probably would have helped me, but I wouldn't have changed anything. Okay, fair enough. Ned? Two points. One, if I knew then what I know now about sleep. When I was in high school, I grew up in rural Connecticut, and there was, of course, no internet back there. Cable television did not come to my corner of the world. Perhaps not surprisingly, I had a girlfriend, so I didn't have any compelling reason to stay up late. So I kind of did my homework, I went to sleep, and I was always arrested. And kids who were downtown, MTV had just come, you know, and so they were up to all hours of the night waiting for the latest, you know, Duran Duran video, whatever it was. And so I sat there in class with all these kids who, you know, effectively might have, might as well have been intoxicated. And I would keep looking at these people like, what's wrong with that? I mean, I'm a pretty good learner and I was well rested. And so relative to them, I was, you know, they had one hand behind my back. When I got to college and sort of wrecked my own brain by you know, staying up night and screwing around and just found it a lot, lot harder. And like a lot of kids who get to college, I wonder, maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am. But I also had no idea that being so tired would really impact my ability to do my best work. To Bill's point, though, I had a kind of up and down period. This is, I started my freshman year, wasn't super happy, wasn't doing super well, wanted to take a year off from school. My parents said, no, 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 we're afraid you won't go back. So I kind of muddled through freshman year. It was okay. And then I started sophomore year. It was the same darn thing. There were probably a lot of anxiety that from growing up that hadn't been sort of purged out of me. So I took a year off. I worked in restaurants, blah, 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 and I came back. But in, in two really good outcomes from this year at school. One was that my identical twin brother, who was in school with me, made a really serious suicide attempt when he was there. And I was there and saved his life. So there's that. And two, I ended up dating as a junior in college. I ended up dating this young gal as a freshman. Well, had I been a senior, it would have been really scandalous, I suppose. And we would have had a very short time together before I went off. But because I was there as a junior, I can now say I've been married to her for 25 years. So there's that. 
So kind of weak GPA, but a really good spouse. What are the takeaways there for Java junkies? Based on the wisdom you have now, how would you have done your undergrad? Would you have done it the same way? In a perfect world, I would have had the courage to stick with some of the things that I was studying, that I was interested in, but I was afraid I wouldn't do well in. So I should have studied psychology because this is what I'm just fascinated by. But I didn't do it because I thought I was a math guy, but I was afraid to do it. So we should have done that. But in terms of when all the stuff was going, my brother was having such a hard time and I just, I couldn't really study very well because my energy was elsewhere. The literature on self-compassion is really quite compelling. The people who are self-compassionate, that's even a better predictor of success in life than is self-esteem. And so when you have so many freaking headwinds, you just lower your expectation of what you should be able to do. And then when those abate, then you can try to push yourself a little bit more. But you know, probably the only reason that I got through college with all of this stuff going on is I did adequately kind of lower my expectations. You know, I wasn't going to be a straight A student because I couldn't, I didn't have enough bandwidth. So I think people get themselves in a problem where they tell themselves that they have to, they absolutely must but they feel that they can't. And that's not a recipe for motivation. That's a recipe for desperation. And so if you feel like the thing that you have to, you simply can't, you really want to examine, do I have to? Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for making the time for coffee with me today for this marathon session that we've just had, which truly I could have, I have pages and pages of questions that I would still like to ask you. But in the interest of the ability to sit still for another however many hours, I want to just say you did such a service by writing the book, The Self-Driven Child, and in the work that you're continuing to do. And I thank you sincerely for sharing your wisdom with me and the Java Junkie community today. What a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.